Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Well, uh, chapter 12. That's a, a transition in the book. It's transitioning from four significant events to four significant people. And as, uh, as fascinating and as important as historical events are, and especially those four historical events, and the theology that's woven within each one of them, uh, we're going to be moving to uh, the last part of this book, which involves people. And I think all of us can easily relate to people. Now, these fellas are significant for really only one reason. They're significant because God chose to solve man's problem through Abraham. In the covenant that we looked at last week or two, uh, Genesis 12.3 says that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And so recognizing that that's the purpose uh, is so important. It's the key to understanding uh, God's commission, Jesus' commission to us, the church. Uh, seeing what the, what the focal point of the Abrahamic covenant is and what it's intended to do. Blessing everyone on the earth through Abraham. And of course this is because God uh, is going to bring the Messiah through this lineage of Abraham. So we are now in the last part of the book. Uh, it's the biggest part of the book, of course, but uh, we have made it a transition from these key historical events that unravel, that unfold in the first 11 chapters uh, to people. Uh, this is the Abrahamic covenant that we looked at. It's in the beginning of, it's the first nine verses of chapter 12. And within the covenant that God made with Abraham, there are seven unconditional promises. Now, when we ask ourselves, what, is, what does it mean that something's unconditional? That basically means that someone's going to do something regardless of what you do or do not do. Uh, all parents love their children unconditionally. It doesn't matter what our kids do or don't do. It will never change that. Uh, I cannot not love my kids. And so this is an unconditional love that we have. And so... Uh, it's very important for us to, just to understand this because God, uh, uh, God chose to solve our problem. And He chose to do it by entering the creation Himself. Jesus is going to come. God is going to enter the creation in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and solve our sin problem. And so when God decided to do that, nothing's going to change that. It's going to happen. It's an unconditional promise because it's something God decided He was going to do. He chose to do it through Abraham and through Abraham's lineage. And of course, we, we followed Abraham all the way to, to, to Adam, all the way to Shem, and then Shem all the way to Abraham. And ultimately, Abraham's lineage is going to follow through all the way to Jesus. But it was a decision that God made ahead of time. Something that, uh, because it's, it's so important, especially in the text that we're going to look at this morning, because... Uh, people that God redeems have good days and bad days and some really bad days and maybe some, some bad days or extended bad days you know and so uh, we don't always operate by faith we don't always make the right decisions we don't always uh, live without sin in our lives and so uh, the unconditional love of God is very important and realizing that when God 
made this promise through Abraham, he, he established this covenant, and he chose him, what he was really doing was laying down the foundation for a plan that actually solves everybody's problem. This is the nature of the Abrahamic covenant, and it is the nature of God's commission that he gives the church. We're supposed to have that same mindset that everything we do is supposed to be to the benefit of others. And uh, we've always said that we're the best thing that ever happened to somebody is meeting us because we're Christians and we have the answer and they don't. That makes us very important. And how we conduct ourselves in the world is also equally important. So uh, Abraham, of course, believed this. He believed God. He took God at his word. And so that means that not only did he believe God exists, he believed that God was the ultimate creator and that he was capable of fulfilling the promises and that he really was going to fulfill them. And so God, Abraham believed that about God. That's why Abraham is in heaven today. That's why everybody who is in heaven will be there because they have placed their faith in Jesus, we, in, in, in God, for who, who God is. Um, when you close your eyes the last time here on earth and when you open them uh, in the presence of God, you know, uh, you want to be very quickly looking around for Jesus because the last thing you want to do is to be standing there all by yourself. You know, that's when you know that you're really not trusting in yourself, you're really trusting in Jesus because you, you need Him. If you don't have Him, you're in big trouble. And so that's what it means. So this is why Abraham... Uh, is in heaven because he placed his faith in God. He trusted him. Uh, Romans chapter 4 is all about that. Romans chapter 4 is, uh, we looked at some of those passages, some of those verses last week, and uh, the whole point of chapter 4 is that a person is justified by faith and not by works. And the object lesson, the illustration, the, the way that, that Paul taught that was with Abraham. He said, was, was Abraham justified? Was he declared righteous by God before he was circumcised or after? It was before, you see. And it's faith first. You know, some folks think that, you're, uh, that God regenerates you and then you believe. And they think that because of the horrible condition of a lost sinner. We are uh, totally depraved and incapable of choosing God. Our, our natures would never do that. You know, uh, I, I would never volunteer to eat spinach. It will never happen. I will never, ever do that. You, I will not volunteer to do that. Uh, even in prison, I don't know, but I, I don't think I'd ever, like, I would not eat spinach. It's not in my nature. I don't like it, you know. Uh, maybe you have some food like that. If a person's laying here on the floor and they're, they're out of, they're, their heart's not beating and they've died, there's nothing that person can do to make themselves come back to life. It's game over. And so that is the condition of a sinner. They are in big trouble. They're completely lost, and their nature will never choose God. And so folks do some rationalizing and reasoning, and they think, well, then that means that God has to regenerate them first so they can believe. Well, what actually happens is, is that God gives you the gift of faith. He gives you the gift of repentance. Those are things that you do not have from within yourself. They're actually given to you. And so when God grants that gift of faith, you place your faith in God and you're regenerated. Now, if you want to take a scalpel and start trying to divide all of that up, good luck. But I think you have to know from the very beginning that it begins with faith. Faith is first. 
And so this is the whole point of Romans chapter 4. It's the most important thing that we can uh, take away from the Abrahamic covenant is that we are justified by faith and not by works and that God has a very important plan for all of us. We're supposed to, to, uh, to, to work. We're supposed to be stewards to prepare ourselves to, to get to work. You know? So uh, you don't go to, through boot camp and then go back home. You know, boot camp is to prepare you. This is what Christians are supposed to be doing, is realizing that we're supposed to go uh, out onto the field and work. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So this nature of the Abrahamic covenant, and I've got this slide up there that shows you the, the seven unconditional promises, but um, it's very important for us to understand that after this dramatic conversion by Abraham, well, his name's Abram, it's not Abraham yet, but after this dramatic conversion, uh, his faith, his saving faith, began to demonstrate itself with works. He obeyed God. He left Ur. He went to Haran. His father passed away. God said, okay, well, it's time to continue on. So he leaves Canaan, or he leaves Haran, and he goes down to Canaan, and he goes to Shechem, and he goes to Bethel, and each place he uh, establishes an altar, and he continues to worship God. And so uh, wonderful uh, faith that is working in the life of Abraham. But right after that, in our passage this morning, we're going to see that Abraham, Abram begins to make a series of mistakes. And so it is in the light of the unconditional nature of the covenant, the fact that Abram was saved, justified, apart from works. He wasn't circumcised. He wasn't going to church. He wasn't, you know, putting money in the offering plate and doing all, all of these things. God saved him as a sinner. Uh, he was uh, in a family that was pagan and worshipped idols. And um, so God saved him while he was lost. And it is in light of all of that that we begin to look at these series of mistakes that he makes. So let's read our passage. It's just uh, from, ch- from chapter 12. It's verses 10 to the end of the chapter. So uh, beginning in verse 10. And remember, Abraham has been, he's left Ur, he's went to Haran, he's went from Haran to Canaan, he went to Shechem, and he went to Bethel, and now he's in the Negev, which is that lower part of Israel, where it's, it's just a wasteland desert now, but at the time it was, it was better. But uh, he's down there. So then we come to verse 10. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine in the land was severe. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. So please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you. My life will be spared on your account. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with several plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh sent for Abram, and he said, Why have you done this to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? so that I took her as my wife. Now here's your wife, take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife, 
and all he had. So ladies, how are you feeling about Abram right now? (laughs) Well, beginning there in verse 10, it tells us that there was a famine. And at the end of the verse, it says it was severe. So this is a very bad famine. And so this is when Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while. So this was temporary. He had no intentions of going there and staying there. He was just trying to outlast this famine. Now, in the Bible, Egypt is often spoken of to represent the world. And I have one verse here to kind of demonstrate that. This is from Isaiah 31, verse 1. And it says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel, and they do not seek the Lord's help. So I hope you can see that, that there's this, uh, there's this uh, Egypt represents uh, everything outside of God. Whenever you decide to solve problems on your own, or you go back to the world, you go back to your old ways, whatever it is that you choose to do outside of staying with your, your eyes upon on God, Whenever you do that, Egypt is in the Old Testament many times represents the world. So I hope you can see that. Isaiah 31.1, it says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel, and they do not seek the Lord's help. Now, we do know that God told Abraham to, that it told him to go to Canaan. But there's no indication in here in the text that God told him to leave Canaan. Uh, There's no indication here that Abraham was operating out of faith. And for that reason, we can see that this famine was a test. A test. A test to the believer. So, you know, uh, we're on this high note where he's left Canaan and he's worshiping God, and then here comes a test. And what is the purpose of a test? Um, you might call a test a trial or a difficulty, a valley. It could be about anything. Problems at home, problems with your health, problems with our country. Anything that you're going through uh, as a person that is difficult. And you know that you're going through it because you want to get out of it. Fair enough, that's a really good definition. If you want to understand if you're going through a test or a trial, you'll know it because you want out. Who doesn't want out? And so this is the situation. Uh, uh, Peter um, talks about trials uh, as being various kinds. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, he says that, there, that a Christian endures various trials, so various kinds of trials. Uh, they're going to have different, the, the difficulties of the trials will vary. Various kinds and in various degrees and he compares it to gold being uh, purified by fire. And so if a trial in your life is being compared to gold being purified by fire, what does that tell us? What is Peter trying to explain? He's trying to explain to us that, that uh, there's dross in your life and God's removing it, purifying us. It's making us better. Uh, Job does the same thing. Job 23.10 says, Yet he knows the way I have taken. When he has tested me, I will emerge as pure gold. So Peter is drawing from this picture that that Job gave so many years ago. Job 23.10, Yet he knows the way I have taken. When he has tested me, 
I will emerge as pure gold. Now, there's a couple of things that we want to say about trials real quickly. Um, first of all, a trial in a believer's life is not there because of a lack of faith. Some folks misunderstand difficulties in their life as being there because of a lack of faith. Some people think that if you have enough faith, you can overcome the, the laws of sin and death. Well, that's not true. That's not biblical. All of us. Remember the book of Hebrews says it's appointed for, for man to die. All of us will die. And it's because of our sin, the law of sin and death, for the wages of sin is death. Your faith is not going to overcome that. Uh, some Christians, uh, they, get, they get so wrapped up in, in their faith, their faith, that they think everything is in orbit around their ability or inability to exercise faith. And so much to the point to where it's really not God anymore. God becomes this impersonal force that they tap into to maneuver around. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about having faith. Uh, sometimes our trials are self-inflicted. It's when we've done things that we shouldn't have done. And we've found ourselves caught in the cobweb. So we're in the spider web by our own doings, and that's a miserable place for us to find ourselves. And I think each one of us, if we were honest, would say, that's happened to me more times than I want to admit or remember. But whenever we find ourselves in a jam, especially when we're the ones who created the problem, the last thing we want to do is the thing that we always do. And that is to try to deflect blame. And so you begin to blame God, or you begin to blame others. And so that's not what we want to do either. So when we come to this place here in, in Genesis, we're not finding a situation that is a self-created problem. Abram has not done something to merit this famine. So this is just coming upon him. This is not because of his sin. It's not because of a lack of faith. And, you know, when you're in a trial, trials do not just come upon you and you get caught up in it collateral, your collateral damage. You know, there's a, there's a famine in America, and so I'm hungry. I'm collateral damage. Well, that's not really true. The, uh, the test is pointed directly at you. It is for you. And it's for everybody else that is infected, that is affected by it. God is able to work in your life and other people's lives at the same time. Now, like I said, if we were honest, you know, who doesn't want to get out of a trial? You know, if um, you're laying here on the table and I have a needle and I start pushing it down on you, you're going to be squirming out from under that needle as fast as you can, right? Nobody wants that. And so uh, the problem is that if, if uh, every time uh, these things happen, uh, we try to squirm off the hook, we don't grow. And so, uh, you know, I know that I've been in some spots in my life and I've asked God to get me out of them and he has. He has, you know, I'm just like, okay, that was nice, thank you. I'm back in business. Um, but other times he's made it to where it's not going away, and i got to write it out. And those are the ones that we're talking about here where it's something you aren't going to escape, you are going to grow from it one way, whether you like it or not. And uh, uh, Warren Wiersbe described trials in the believer's life, life like this. He said, God knows what kind of faith we have, but we don't know. 
And the only way to advance in the school of faith is to take examinations. And Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, trials teach us what we are. On October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther, Catholic priest, he nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the Cathedral of Wittenberg. And uh, we know him as one of the great reformers. And of course, when he did that, it, it uh, didn't work out the way he had planned. Uh, three years later, he was actually excommunicated from the church, the church that he was in and going to and in good standing. All of a sudden, he was kicked out. That's a horrible. And uh, his life was, you know, on the line. And so he had to he had to flee into Germany. He had to lay though lay low there in Germany and. And uh, he did some remarkable things while he was there. He translated the New Testament into German uh, while he was in hiding there. But uh, he got very sick. He stayed sick for a long time. And then by 1527, the, the Black Plague began to sweep through Europe. And everybody was dying. And uh, he, took, he took his folks in and, and his home became a refuge. And his, his son almost died. And it's in the middle of all of that that he penned that hymn that you know, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it's based upon Psalm 46 that Eddie read for us. A mighty fortress is our God. So he wrote that song in the middle of this, these trials and ongoing difficulties. And so uh, the opening line to that hymn is inscribed on his tombstone. I know more than once that I've compared the Christian life to joining the military. Uh, when you join the military, you, you might get stationed in San Diego, which I've heard is very nice. Uh, but you might end up in a prison in Vietnam, or maimed, or worse. So how can we trust God in the middle of our sufferings? Because not everybody gets stationed in San Diego. I have a couple of uh, examples, a couple of things. One is uh, to keep your to keep your difficulty in perspective. No matter what you're going through, there's always someone who's going through something worse. That helps, maybe. Um, but Peter, uh, in First Peter, we we talked about verse seven, but in the verse before that, First Peter one six, it says that. Uh, uh, Peter tells us that it's been appointed for Christians to suffer a little. To suffer a little. And it's a little when you keep that in perspective. Because uh, when you compare, uh, and for those of you who are older, um, maybe you can relate to this better than the younger people here, but uh, life is very short. It is short. And when you're 70 and 80, you don't want to die any more than you do when you're 20. Life goes by very quickly. And as, it, and as time passes, you realize you went through all of these different trials, all of these different types of testing that has grown you into the person that you are. And that's why it's very foolish for young people not to look up to, their older, to the older members of the congregation, the seniors who've, who've been there before us. They bring wisdom and guidance. And so uh, we cherish that here at our church. Um, but 
Peter, what he does is he says, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, when you think about all of eternity, our sufferings are just a little. You know, Jesus had them pull the ship out, pull the boat out away from the shore just a little. Just a little. But uh, when he did that, it, it fulfilled God's purposes. And then we think of when he moved that boat out just a little, how far out it was just in relation to the rest of the Sea of Galilee. So hopefully keeping your problems in perspective will help. But if that doesn't work for you, if that doesn't resonate, doesn't communicate, there's a, our daily bread. You know, Jesus teaches us to pray for him to give us each day our daily bread. Because uh, there's no benefit in worrying. Each day has enough problems of its own. In the Old Testament, manna demonstrated this. Manna was something that would come from, the, from God. He would put it on the ground. And it was uh, something that would come every day. And so there was nothing they could do to make the manna come. And uh, they could store it up for the next day because it would spoil. So it was, it was something God brought to them. It was just enough for the day. And then it was gone. And so manna illustrates for us how we are to rely on God each day. Now, when we turn our attention to Abram, he's faced with a great problem and he has great responsibilities. There are, you know, the, the animals, the livestock, the children, all of the people that are there because of him. They're following his leadership. And the famine is severe. So I'm going to assume that he can't feed everybody. What's he going to do? I can just go into Egypt where there's not a famine and these people can be provided for. Doesn't that make perfect sense? Well, we have to remember that what Abram was thinking is if I stay here, we die. Is that true? We remember the seven unconditional promises. Abraham was not going to die in Canaan. He wasn't going to. And he's going to go into Egypt and he's going to be afraid that when he gets into Egypt he's going to be killed there too. But Abraham was not going to be killed in Egypt either. How do we know that? Because of these promises. These are unconditional promises. Uh, this here map here shows us some. Uh, shows us the route that they took from Ur up into Haran, and then they ultimately go down there into Canaan. And so, if you see Egypt uh, with the with the Nile River at the delta. And then you can see where Israel is, or Canaan. Right in between them is that kind of little triangle. That's the Red Sea, and it's got those two little prongs that come up on either side of that triangle. That's the Sinai Peninsula. And so that's where the, the Jewish people spent 40 years wandering around. <laughs> you know, when they, when they finally, when Moses leads them out of Egypt, they end up in that desert for the next 40 years or so. Everywhere but in Egypt, or everywhere but in Israel. But uh, where we're at today... Abram is going to lead them through the Sinai Peninsula into Egypt. God wants us to, to seek His face as we attempt to solve our problems 
and endure hardship. He does. Uh, God expects us to use our brains to uh, gain counsel from people. You know, one of the reasons you have parents is, uh, is for their wisdom and their guidance. Um, uh, if you think about in your life, uh, there are different kinds of authorities in your life, and God's placed them there to help you make your decisions. And uh, so God does want you to draw from that. Uh, he wants you to draw from the Bible. He wants you to pray and seek his face as you are facing a hardship or you're trying to make a decision. He does want you to use some wisdom. God wants us to, to use our brains and to try to figure out what to do. He does. And so Abram is in a bad spot. He's trying to figure out what to do. But God hasn't told him to leave Canaan. In reality, uh, uh, you know, the problem is, is that when, when you and I have, have decisions that we have to make, should I take this job, not take this job? Should I, should I help this person in this way? Should I go here to go to this place? Should I, you know, every time you make a decision, should I spend money on this thing? Every time, you know, God wants you to, to use all of these faculties to help you make your decision, but they all have to be underneath the umbrella of God's word, not the umbrella of your experiences. Some people live by their experiences. That's a, that's a mistake too. You have to live underneath the authority of the Bible. And so the, the psalmist talks about how you're on the path and the light of God, his word is lighting the path. And so you stay on that path. You don't step off of it. And so this is how we make our decisions. So there's nothing wrong with Abram trying to work his, to try to work through this. But, you know, it doesn't look like he should have went. And even if uh, that wasn't such a bad decision, when he starts to get to Egypt, he starts to realize that he's got a new problem, and that's his wife. And I don't think Sarah was the only woman in this crew. All of the women were in jeopardy going into Egypt. That should have turned him around, I think. So uh, if it was wrong for him to leave to go to Egypt, it just got worse when he said to his wife, Please say that you're. Please say that you're my sister. You know, uh, and I'm sure that his wife loved him very much, and I'm sure that the two of them talked about this, and that they both agreed to do it for the greater good, because they were trying to to make some self sacrifices to provide for all of those they were leading. But if there was ever a slippery slope, this is one. This is it. You know, Paul tells each Christian man. Uh, each one of you, Ephesians 5.33, he says, each one of you is to love his wife as himself. You know, this, uh, this little master plan that Abram had dreamed up, um, uh, I think that, you know, by saying that he's the brother, that meant that if someone wanted to marry Sarah, that there needed to be a marriage proposal and an agreement and bartering, and, and uh, that, gave, that gave Abram time. It gave him some control over what was going to happen with these marriage proposals. You know, um, that would give him time to stall, time to ride out the famine, and time to get out of there before things got out of hand. You know, but the problem was is that it was the Pharaoh who wanted his wife. Game over. 
Verse 16 says that the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household and Abram was treated well because of her. So that was when they finally do leave Egypt, I bet that was a long ride home. You know. But uh, in verse 17, it says that the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with several plagues. We don't know what that means. But as far as marriage goes, the best case scenario here is we can draw from the book of from the book of Esther, and we know that even though Esther was brought into this place, uh, there was a time of preparation, you know, and so hopefully all of these things transpired during that period of preparation. We don't know that. Uh, we do know that for some reason they recognized that these plagues were because of Sarah. How did they know that? Was she not affected and everybody else was? Did this happen as soon as she entered the household? Everybody started getting sick? We don't know that either, do we? But we do know that they could identify it as her. Now, how did the Pharaoh find out that she was married? Well, obviously there had to be some inquiries. Some inquiries were made and someone spilled the beans. Sarah might have spilled the beans. People, Abraham's family, people that knew, word would get around. And you know how it is when, whenever you get an opportunity to, to do something to make the boss happy, you'll tell them something juicy if that's going to make them happy. Whatever it takes, getting good with your boss. A lot of people are like, are like that. So somebody spilled the beans because someone always does. Now, uh, what's the Pharaoh do? He says, here, take, here's your wife. Take her and go. He didn't kill them all because of fear of the God of Israel. And this is the worst part of this. This is the, the real point, I think, of this passage. Is that Israel was uh, rebuked but not put to their death out of Pharaoh's fear of their God. Certainly there was a loss of respect for the Israelites. They're actually being rebuked. They're actually being rebuked by the people that they were supposed to be a witness to. Think of that. Instead of being a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, they were leaving in dishonor. This is a very important lesson for us in this passage. It's very applicable. It doesn't matter who you are, this applies to you. It doesn't matter if you're a freshman in college, it doesn't matter if you're an adult just trying to make ends meet, or you're late in life and you've got a bad health report. For all of us, it falls on the shoulders of each one of us to apply these biblical truths to ourselves. So let's pray.